when I was growing up, I don't know about you, but I, I loved mysteries. I loved mystery stories. I loved mystery shows. I liked watching TV shows. My, my favorite TV shows, some of them I'm proud of, but some of them not so much. And they were shows like Perry Mason and Columbo, those I'm proud of still. I know that half the group has no clue what those are. Um, Columbo's a weird guy who's always peeling eggs, okay? So it's a, it's a mystery show, Columbo, Perry Mason, and then I would claim the ones I'm not so proud about. I would claim that I only watched Murder, She Wrote because my mom liked it, <clears throat> but I really did too. <clears throat> um, I, liked, I liked mystery though, and I, I read every one of the Hardy Boys books. I, I would, I would, when I would get a book, I couldn't put it down until I finished reading it. So often I would be hiding under my covers, just obeying my parents with a flashlight, reading the Hardy Boys book late into the night. I, I loved mysteries, and I even <clears throat> read my sister's books, Nancy Drew, and even sadly, the Bobsy Twins. Anybody knows what those are? I won't. <clears throat> I was forced to read them, and. Uh, <laughs> Much later, though, I, I, you know, growing up, I, I still liked espionage thrillers, and uh, I liked Sherlock Holmes. I remember, remember trying to figure out just who exactly is this Professor Moriarty, and and will Holmes ever catch him? And and today, I still enjoy a good mystery, and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the upcoming Sherlock Holmes series on BBC when it comes out. And um, you can, you, okay, sure, clap for that. That's great. <laughs> a lot of BBC fans here. Yeah, I hope they're crossovers from that Downton Abbey show, that, that nonsense. So go over to a good show, hopefully, something else. <laughs> that was exactly the response I was hoping for. Thank you. <laughs> um, I think most of us like mysteries, too. Most of us like mysteries. And mysteries, that, that, you know, though, we like the kinds of mysteries that aren't too obvious. We like the ones with just enough clues that we, makes us feel smart, makes us feel like we figured it out and no one else really has. We know the truth. And then, you know, you don't want to reveal everything. And just in the end, you're like, yeah, I was right. I am smart. I mean, that's, that's what we like. We, we like those kinds of shows, those mysteries. And, and I think the reason why we like mysteries or society is because we were created to. We were created to to want to know. We were created to want to understand things that we don't understand. We were created to, to, for our curiosity to be piqued when we see something we don't understand. We were actually created to try to understand those things. We were created to try to delve into, to want to delve into the mysteries of God's creation. We were created to want to delve into, want to figure out the mysteries of, of God. That He's infinite. That He's eternal. That he's all-knowing, that he's all-wise. We were created to love these things because really we were created to love God and to, to want to know more about God and about his wisdom and the, the mystery of his grace and goodness. We, we were given that God-given desire to understand. And I think that's what feeds that desire for mystery. We were created to want to know. In fact, if you look in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning, what did the serpent use to tempt Eve? He, he, used, he used the idea of, of knowing, of, of wisdom to tempt the woman. And he says in Genesis 3, 4 to 6, I have it for you here. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you won't surely die. It's kind of piquing her curiosity. Really? Hmm. Why do you say that? He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, the fruit, the forbidden fruit, that your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. You see, they wanted to be wise. They wanted to understand, but they wanted to understand on their own. They wanted to understand in their own way, in their own eyes. They wanted to be wise in their own eyes, but really... Man's wisdom, being wise on our own and our own understanding, it's really foolishness, isn't it? It got Adam and Eve into a lot of trouble. It was foolishness to them. It was not God's wisdom. This was earthly wisdom. On our own, we don't understand the things of God. We need to understand his mysteries through him. So humanity has slipped into darkness. You know know the story and to sin and humanity became blinded to our own sin. We became blinded to true wisdom. And what is true wisdom? It's, it's who God is, who He reveals Himself to be, who He reveals us to be in Him. It's His plans for us. And our foolish hearts were darkened, but, but God had a plan from the very beginning, since actually before the very beginning, from eternity past, God had always known that Adam and Eve would do that, that mankind would fall. But God always had a plan in eternity past, even before He created man to redeem humanity and to call a people to Himself. Think about that. God, from before eternity, always planned to call you to the church. He always planned to call you to himself. From the very beginning, he had a plan. And what seemed unwise to humanity and a way to do it, God, in his infinite wisdom, always had a plan to call a people to himself. And the problem is, his people didn't trust him from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they didn't trust him. So he... He had his people learn. He had a plan to help his people learn how to trust him. And so he demonstrated time and time again over thousands and thousands of years that he could be trusted even when it didn't seem to make sense. And then about 2,000 years ago, what did he do? He raised up this Roman emperor and subjugated his people. Wait a minute, how could that be the wise plans of God? How could God imprison his people... Under the Romans, how could that be God's wisdom? And yet, we see that that was God's very wisdom to bring an emperor to subject the world at the time, basically, to to learn one language, to have one form, one system of government, one way of commerce, of trade, of of routes. And so God, in His wisdom, it says, at just the right time, He sent His Son just the right time and just the right place in history, just the right moment. And so in the fullness of time, God, God's wise plans were worked out. And that's when God began to reveal, this is what I mean when I say I'm calling a people to myself. And, and what had been a mystery to mankind for thousands of years, it was finally revealed and it was shocking. And here was the shock. It was shocking, especially to his people in that day, because they thought they were the only ones. They were the chosen race and... And the Gentiles were outside and they had no place in God's kingdom. They had no place with God's people. They had no place with Israel. And yet the shock was when Jesus comes onto the scene that he wasn't bringing a physical promised land. That wasn't God's ultimate purpose. His ultimate purpose was to call every tribe, every tongue, every nation to himself, that he was going to save a people from all nations through him. And that was shocking. It didn't seem to make sense. Why would God cloister his people for thousands of years only to say, now, all of you, come in. Come in through my son and come be my people. How could that make sense? It seemed like a mystery. Every good Jew knew through hundreds of years of painful lessons, they knew that they 
could trust God even when they didn't understand. But no Jew was prepared to understand God's purposes, that God's purposes were to send the Messiah, not just to save the Jews, but to save the Gentiles, those hated people without, and unite them together into one nation. Who, who would have thought that? That would have been completely baffling to them. It would have been a mystery to them. They would not have gotten that. Although, if you go back and read the Old Testament Scriptures, it's easy now to, for us to go back and see, well, of course, didn't God in His promise to Abraham always call all nations to be blessed through the seed of Abraham? Why would, why would God do it this way, though? The Jews didn't understand how this man Jesus could be the Messiah, especially not after He was killed. Isn't the Messiah victorious? And His disciples claimed He was raised again. It seemed like foolishness to them. The wisdom of, of men, though, was what was really foolish. And so what seemed like foolishness to them, the wisdom of God, was in fact true wisdom. But it still wasn't known to a, a young guy named Saul. He was persecuting Christians. Later he became the Apostle Paul. Later this Saul would write the very letter that we're about to dig into, Ephesians. He would write this letter... And this morning, Paul is reflecting back on his past. He's also reflecting on, a, on, his, on his current conditions. And he's seeing the wisdom of God at work to save some unlikely character like him. He's seeing the wisdom of God to bring him to preach the good news to the Gentiles. And he's even seeing the wisdom of God that's placed him in prison. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians 3. We're going to read from verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. If you don't have your Bible, you can look up on the overheads as well. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, before we read further, Paul pauses. He's affected by that. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So he changes where he was going. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he goes, assuming, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you 
not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work in and through your word today. God, I pray that you would work through your word to reveal who you are to us. I pray that you would work through your word to reveal your truth to us. Father, I pray that you would work in us to enable us to change. And God, change our hearts. Lord, we want to, to see you. We, we need to behold your glory. We need to hear you. We need to trust in you. God, help us love you and love your people more as a result of your word being preached today, we pray. Thank you, God, that you use the weak and the needy to do your work. Father, please use my feeble efforts to bring glory to you and hope to your people, we pray. In your name, amen. Saul, the man who is writing this, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And if you remember, the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus very much, did they? They had a problem with Jesus. See, he claimed to be the Messiah, but then he ate with sinners and tax collectors. That didn't make sense. If he was the Messiah, wouldn't he have known that the woman who anointed his feet was a prostitute and no self-respecting teacher would ever let a woman of any kind touch them? Jesus talked to the Samaritans. He even talked to Samaritan women. How could this be God's Messiah? He let disciples pick grain on the Sabbath when they were hungry. He dared to perform miracles on the Sabbath this Jesus, he seemed like a fool to, to Saul, to the Pharisees. He couldn't be the Messiah because he wasn't what they expected, was he? But the Pharisees, despite their thoughts, they didn't get that Jesus really is the Son of God. They didn't understand the truth. They, they should have seen that all of the Old Testament pointed to him. They should have seen the lame walk. The blind were made to see that he opened up deaf ears. He cast out demons. He fed people from nothing. He created bread and fish and fed thousands. Only God did that. And if they remember their Old Testament stories, only God is the one, the giver of bread to mankind. And he raised the dead to life. Surely they should have known, they should have seen this open secret, this what was a mystery to them, but they didn't. Not only that, he, Jesus was raised to life again, just as he said he would do after he was crucified. And he appeared to hundreds of people, but Saul still didn't believe. Okay, so get yourself in the shoes of, of Paul, Saul, who's writing to us here. He still didn't believe. Instead, he zealously pursued the Christians. He sought to wipe them out. He was their chief prosecutor of the Christians. That's who's writing to the Ephesians from jail. He was thinking he was doing God's will. The book of Acts tells us, it says, he was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Can you imagine the brutality and the violence? Now, shocking it would be to those families as Paul is breaking down the doors, going in, grabbing the parents, and throwing them in jail. That would have been a traumatic experience. And he was ravaging the church that way. Until Jesus confronted Saul. 
on the road to Damascus. He was literally on his high horse on the, on the way to Damascus and, and God blinded him. Jesus blinded him and, and he sent him a man named Ananias to pray for him and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But only God's power could, could change Paul. Only God's power can change each and every one of us. Only God's power can reveal to us the mystery of God's plan throughout all eternity. But here's, here's the cool thing. God does change. God does reveal himself. His Holy Spirit is able to open up blind eyes, to reveal his mysteries to us. And now many years later, Paul is writing in jail and he goes by the name Paul now. We'll get to that later. Why is he going by the name Paul? He's writing to the churches in the area of Ephesus. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, if you can look in your Bibles, please. He's about to pray for them again. And he starts off this chapter. And then he doesn't finish his thought until, the, until verse 14 later. And he says, look in your Bible. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then what does he do? He stops. And I think he stops praying because he's affected and he doesn't pick up the sentence again until verse 14. And it's almost as if he's struck with the immensity of the fact of what he has just said himself. You ever, you ever say something really significant and you realize, oh, wait a minute, I've got to explain that. He, he just realizes, he said, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus? How crazy is that? And even crazier on behalf of you Gentiles, you dogs. And he wants to explain what he just said, because they might have been tempted to be concerned as well. Paul was a caring pastor. They, they might have been tempted to be concerned about him being in prison. They might have been confused as to how could this be the wisdom of God to allow Paul to be in prison at all. And so the first thing we're going to look at really from these verses is that it's really the, the, the main, one of the main points here is that in God's wisdom, he uses unlikely people to make known his mystery. Paul stops and begins to explain. Why does he do that? Because... He's aware that God's used him, the most unlikely person, to proclaim the mysteries of Christ. He was in a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. What an incredible statement. This was the guy who persecuted Christians and threw them into jail. He would never have even associated with Gentiles in the past. They wouldn't, and Jews wouldn't even eat the same table as a Gentile. And yet now he's in prison on their behalf. Well, on on behalf of the people he would have hated in the past. So when Paul is writing in, the, in, the, in chapter 2, we, we looked at last week about the reconciling power of God and the church to bring Jew and Gentile together. This is not just some ethereal idea to Paul. This isn't some abstract thought. Paul is aware that he, the hater of the Gentiles, the hater of the Christians, has been reconciled to those he never would have given a second thought to. Now, not only that, he's a prisoner on behalf of those he would have disdained as Gentile dogs. And he's the one, he's a prisoner. This is kind of interesting. Think of the irony here. He's bound and imprisoned for the sake of Christ. He's physically in prison now because he was bound to Jesus Christ. And the irony is he wants bound people who were Christ's and imprisoned them. 
He hadn't done anything wrong legally, but he had preached the good news, the good news that transformed him. Paul was affected by this transforming grace that he was an unlikely character, that he was not the one you would think to choose as the model Christian. He was the hater of Christians. And he tells him, assuming you've heard about the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, You see, Paul realizes that he was an unlikely candidate chosen. He was chosen for a reason. Just like you and I, each of us, we were very unlikely candidates. But we've been chosen for a reason. And he says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, Paul was aware that he wasn't his own. He wasn't living for himself. His whole entire life mission was to be a good steward of God's grace for the sake of the Gentiles. What? Are you aware what your life's mission is? is? Is that on the forefront of your mind? Are you aware of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to us? God entrusted to, to Paul a great truth that had been hidden for ages prior. And this, this mystery that was God's eternal plan to unite Jew and Gentile alike into a new humanity through Jesus Christ. And Paul knew He knew that he had not been given the gospel, this good news, this grace, just for his own personal benefit. We haven't been given God's grace for our just our own personal benefit, although it is for our benefit. It's not for our benefit alone. So often we live as if the message of reconciliation, the revelation of who Jesus is and what he came to do, and we live practically as if it's just good news for us, don't we? We live practically as if the good news he entrusted to us doesn't need to be shared. We live practically as if we're unaware that we're stewards of the good grace that God has given to us in the gospel and in the church. And Paul links those two together really intricately, by the way. The the good news of the gospel is the good news of his church as well. You can't preach the gospel adequately without also preaching the church. Maybe it's because we don't see ourselves... As unlikely candidates. Maybe we think that God got a good catch. Paul was aware of his unlikely stewardship of God's grace. And he was aware that it was intended for the good of others. And the question for us, if you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, is it, are you aware that you've been given a stewardship of God's grace? And if we're aware we've been given a stewardship of God's grace, do we realize that this stewardship we've been given is for the sake of those around us? Do we look at the lost people around us and think, yeah, I've been given the stewardship of God's grace for them. And I'm willing to sacrifice for that because Jesus sacrificed for me and made me his own. So there's no cost that compares. Paul was aware of that. He lived to make God's grace known. He lived to reveal the mystery. Better yet, this this open secret. That's what the word mystery here means. Is It's kind of an open secret of the gospel of reconciliation to those around him. There's this show, I don't know if it's still on or not, it was uh, Les Stroud's Survivor Man. And it's the story of this guy who gets dropped in unlikely places. He was dropped into a wilderness with only limited supplies. And if you were Survivor Man, you would be aware that you were a man on a mission. And you would be a steward of, of what you were given. God's, God's given us a mission. Now, we're not alone like that. We've actually been placed on a mission with the church, in the church. But God's given us a mission as the church to reveal his purposes in and through us as we are part of the church. And he's given us a mission and he's called us to be good stewards of what he's given to us. 
Paul was a man on a mission in a hostile world, given the stewardship of God's grace. And all of us are to carefully think of ourselves that way as stewards. How am I stewarding the grace of God that's been given to me because he made me alive? How am I stewarding that? And Paul was aware of this mystery that was made known to him by revelation. And we need to be equally aware. In verse 3, he says, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation. Do you realize that God revealed the good news of the gospel to you? Do you realize that it was the divine revelation of the Holy Spirit making you alive that you understand this mystery? It's not a mystery for you any longer. He was aware, Paul was aware, he didn't understand the mystery of God's grace to unite all things in heaven and earth in Christ on his own. He didn't understand what God had planned from eternity past. But now he understands this mystery by the revelation that God had given to him, that Jew and Gentile to be joined together in one body in the church. And that is actually part of God's divine purposes and salvation. You see, God didn't call us to be on our own. He didn't call us to be drifting alone. God didn't call us to be independent Christians. God called us to a local body. He called us to his church. And that's a revelation of the mystery that Paul is talking about. There's a greater revelation than, than any... Embarrassed, I used to like that watch. There was a show on a couple years ago. It was called uh, Magic's Greatest Secrets Revealed. It's this man with this weird mask with stripe. I don't understand why he had a mask on, but this guy with a stripey mask. I guess magicians would kill him or something. I don't know. Um, it, it, it was revelation that was greater than anything we can imagine. It was of the miraculous truth, and it required God's power to reveal it. So Paul writes to them to explain the mystery to them so they'd understand and be amazed at God's will for them and so they would grasp the significance of what they've been called to in the church. Paul's, through the Holy Spirit, not just writing to the church in Ephesus, but God's writing this letter to each and every one of us. And he's, he's wanting us to grasp the revelation of this mystery ourselves, to see how this affects us, to see that God's revealed this mystery of the good news, the gospel of His grace, and God's revealed that He has a purpose to save a people to Himself. And that he's going to unite all things in the church. Do you get that? Does it, does it astound you like it astounded Paul? Does it make you stop when you're sharing the, the good news? And wait, let me explain. This mystery, I, I don't know this on my own. God, God revealed this to me. Do you get excited about it like Paul gets excited? Does it motivate you like it motivated Paul? Like he wanted the Ephesians to be motivated to remember, this is a revelation you have. This isn't just something ho-hum. You have divine revelation of the good news in and through the church. That's God's mysterious plans. And God uses unlikely people like you and me to make known the mystery of Jesus Christ. And then verse 5, it, if you look in your Bibles, it tells us the truth was not understood by man until God chose to reveal it to him. It says, it was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, has been now revealed. Was it made known to the sons of men in other generations? Wow, how astounding is that? God allowed us to be born on this side of Jesus. What a privilege. Does that strike you? But all the Old Testament, all the law, all the prophets, they point forward to Jesus Christ. And it's clear, if you go back and read the Old Testament, that God always intended to bless all nations through, through Abraham's seed. And he's saying the apostles were eyewitnesses. They were prophets. They, they declared everything Jesus said and did by the Spirit. And God used them to reveal the truth of who Jesus is to us. So here's the thing. We have a privilege. Do you count it as a privilege? You're an unlikely person that's God saved by your, His grace. Do we count it as a privilege that we've been given this great mystery? 
We've been given the stewardship that God saved us unlikely candidates to proclaim His grace and His good news. And then verse 6, Paul tells the mystery he speaks of. He said, this mystery, here's the crazy thing. Do you think it's crazy that you're here this morning? I do. That I'm here this morning. I was an unlikely candidate. I, I, don't, I don't think I ever envisioned myself being a pastor when I was growing up. I envisioned myself proclaiming God's good news. I, I envisioned myself making a lot of money and getting rich. And, and yet God, in His wisdom, chose to save me and change me. Make me live for other things. And so Paul says, this mystery, it's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. We are fellow heirs. Most of the people in this room are, are not of Jewish descent. And he's saying, you are fellow heirs. You are members of the same body. That's crazy. You can almost hear Paul just like shaking his head. I, I, this is crazy. This is nuts. We're members of the same body. Partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, the promise was coming through Abraham and his seed. They never would have seen that it was actually coming in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And yet now God's revealed this mystery to us. And what's the second thing we're going to look at through these verses? It's that in God's wisdom... His mystery is that unlikely people are joined together in the church. God didn't just call unlikely people. He called unlikely people to come together in one body and be fellow partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And somehow, mysteriously, that partaking of Jesus Christ and his promises, it occurs when we gather together as a body of Christ. And not only is God calling likely people, but he joins them together in the church in this open secret that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. It wasn't understood before, not only in the good news of Jesus Christ are all the families of the earth blessed, but all of humanity can be redeemed and counted as Abraham's children through faith and made a part of his people and brought into his church and brought into local churches. And that's why we get excited about the local church because this is a local manifestation of God's people living together with lots of differences, lots of weirdness, lots of awkwardness at times, very different ideas and opinions. And yet this is a manifestation is that God brought a bunch of unlikely people together and joined them in his people, the church. We're fellow heirs to the promise on the same footing as the Jews. We're God's chosen people and together... Together we partake of the Holy Spirit himself who is the epitome of God's promise. God's very presence with us to, to help us and to bless us. And how is that true? He says all this is true in Christ Jesus and through the gospel. Now, only in Christ Jesus and only through the gospel, but also in some way uniquely only in the church. Are his promises really seen and carried out and and is he, is he glorified in, in a local church when a bunch of messed up people come together and say, I'm, I'm more concerned about God's glory than my glory. I'm, I want to live for him and I don't want to live for myself anymore. And God's glorified in that. You see, nothing short of God's power can change the heart. Do we understand God's powerful grace that was at work in us is still at work in us? Paul understood who he was on his own. He was saved by grace, called by grace, enabled by grace. And in verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says he's the very least of all the saints. How in the world could Paul say this? Isn't this the great Apostle Paul? 
he could say this because he once thought he was great when he was a Pharisee. But God showed him just how small he really was. And, and he was renamed Paul later on in life. He goes by the name Paul, and Paul means small or diminutive. And so Paul here in these verses, he's using a play on words, and he's saying, I, Paul, small, I'm not only the smallest, and he creates a new word. You can't see it in the English. He creates a new word that wasn't used anywhere else, and he says, in effect, that I am the leaster. I'm the least least. I'm the leastest of all the smallest. He had a, a good understanding of how unworthy he was. But you see, that, that understanding of how unworthy he was led him to magnify how great Christ is. And actually led him to confidence, not in himself, but confidence in who he was in Christ. And that's the effect that it's meant to have on us as well. We're, we, we need to see how unworthy, how unlikely we are so that we can really have confidence in how great God is and the fact that He's the one who saved us and made us his children. So we can walk out in confidence, not worrying when we falter, not worrying when we fail, not doubting when we stumble, not, not looking to our weakness, but saying, I have confidence because it's not me who made me. He made me and called me to be who, who I am. Maybe Paul remembered continually Stephen's face as Stephen was being stoned to death and Paul was smiling, holding the cloaks of those who stoned him. Maybe Paul likely never forgot the torment that he calls those families. As he's ripping their parents out and ravaging the church, the agony that he calls the Christians and the persecution that he began. He never forgot that Jesus had to blind him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He never forgot that he wasn't just hurting people, he was persecuting the very body of Christ. And when you persecute the body of Christ, it's persecuting Christ himself. So Paul's aware that but for the grace of God, he'd be, for, he'd be nothing good. But he doesn't stop with a focus on his leastness. He doesn't stop with focusing on himself and get introspective and think, oh, how low am I? But he says, but how great is God in the mysteries of his grace that was given to me. The unsearchable riches of Christ. That's what I have. I have the unsearchable riches of Christ. Do we grasp in the midst of our leastness? Do we see that we have the unsearchable riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus? My family visited a place a few years back called Endless Caverns in Virginia. And I think at one time, you know, they they couldn't find the end. I I imagine that um, they will one day. (laughs) Um, There's... They aren't actually endless, but there does seem to be endless numbers of tunnels and and caverns to explore for mile after mile. And supposedly, according to the website, still today, they haven't found all the different tunnels and plumbed all the depths of endless caverns. Paul, when he uses that word of unsearchable, it kind of has a connotation that um, these, these are unplumbable depths. These are depths that cannot be searched out no matter how much we look. They are endless wisdom, endless riches, endless grace that God has given to us. That should, be, that should excite us. No one's ever been able to explore all the depths of his riches. The riches of Christ Jesus are, are unable to be searched out. There's no end. We could live a hundred lifetimes and still not reach the end of his riches. Do you get that? Does that astound you? Jesus has an unending wealth of grace, unending kindness, unending, unending wisdom, endless mercy, love, and knowledge. True riches are hidden in Christ. As Paul was given this mystery to proclaim, the 
unsearchable riches of Christ Jesus in and through the church. And we're given that same grace, that same gift, unsearchable riches. In Philippians 3.8, Paul tells us what motivated him. He says, I count everything, I count everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He really believed it. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Why? Because he has all riches. And count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Why would I look anywhere else for satisfaction and hope when Christ is the only one who has all riches? True riches. The question for us is, do we get that? Do we understand that? Do we feel that way? Do we know that Jesus has unsearchable riches? Do you wonder at Jesus the way that Paul wondered at him? When you're aware of your lowness, are you more aware of his riches and his grace that he's given to you? He doesn't want you to stay looking at yourself. He wants to say, look, you're weak, but I'm great. And in me is all the riches. Now, it's not talking about physical riches here. God desires to make himself known to us in, in Jesus Christ. And God desires that we would treasure Jesus this way. I admit that there are so many times when I don't treasure Jesus this way. Because I'm so aware of myself and so aware of so many other things. And so aware of other people or pressures and challenges. And I fail to see this great God who has made known his mystery through the ages and given me his grace that in his wisdom he chose to save me, an unlikely person, and that in his wisdom he's placed me in a church and given me his riches and his grace and kindness. But I pray that God would make himself known to each and every one of us and that we would see Jesus for who he is and he'd make, us, make Jesus even more dear to us. So that we can't ever fully comprehend an eternal all-knowing, infinite God, we can, we can know Him more and more. And I, I think that Paul's wanting to create a hunger in us to, to grow in our knowledge of Him more and more, to understand that they're unsearchable riches. But Paul wasn't only given this gospel of grace to preach unsearchable riches. He was also called in verse 9, it says, look down your Bibles, it says, to bring light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What he's saying is that he was called to illuminate people to see that God's always planned. God's always planned. The creator of all is always planned to reveal his plans in and through Jesus Christ. And Paul was called to shine a light on the fact that God who created everything has always intended to bring all things together in his son and complete his work of recreation on the final day. And in verse 10, look down in your Bibles again, if you will, please. Verse 10, Paul tells us that the reason that he was called to bring these things to light, he says, so that through, I'm going to pause here, through what? What are the next two words? Through the church. Through the church. So God's plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, his plan was always to, through the church, this lowly group, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom, look in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, and here's an unlikely audience, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When you get to that in a minute, you see God had always planned to make known his wisdom through the church. 
And the third thing we're to look at is that he always planned, God always planned to make known his wisdom through the church. God's plan through the ages was always to have a people for himself. And it was always that the church would be the place where the manifold wisdom of, of a God might be revealed. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, really? The church? I'm looking around here and I'm thinking, I don't see any manifold wisdom. You see, we sometimes are more aware of our perspective and less aware of really God's perspective. And he, in his wisdom, he does. He makes known his his plans in and through the church, in and through this people, in and through you and I as we are joined together. Let me ask you, though, what's your view of the church? Do you see that in, in all of creation, the God of all creation planned since eternity? He planned for the church. That was the culmination that he planned for the church to make known his wisdom in and through the church. How do you view the church? Do you see the importance of the church? Do you see the significance of the church or is it optional? Do you think I can be a Christian on my own? I'm part of the church universal. Yes, but not really. No, because there's no way that if you're part of the, just a church universal, not united to one little body, that God's wisdom will be seen. It's, it's actually in and through local bodies of the church that his wisdom is made known. It's not through some vague idea or notion. You see that nobody knows you're part of the church if you're out on your own, but the world, the watching world will see when you are with other people who aren't like you, who don't talk like you, who don't act like you, who come from different backgrounds than you, who are different colored skin than you, they will see that God has done something and in and through the church His manifold wisdom is revealed. So don't think that the church is optional, that you you can come as you as you want. No, we're... That's just part of God's manifold wisdom to realize His purposes in and through the church. And we have a great privilege that His purposes can be revealed through us. And this word manifold is really a unique expression. It's a, it's a poetic expression. It's, it gives the, the picture, the image of the, the multicolored, the multifaceted coat. The multicolored, embroidered coat. A coat of many colors is kind of the, the image we hear. Or maybe a picture, a bouquet of of beautiful flowers, of very different flowers. And he's saying, it's, it's a manifold, the multicolored wisdom, the multi-shaded, the multicolored wisdom of God. It's this diverse, multifaceted wisdom of God. In this context, it has to do with his many splendored wisdom and creating a body and then a local body, a local manifestation of that, of multi-ethnic, multicultural people from every tribe and tongue, and nation, in the body of Christ, His church. So the church, it's a product of the revealed mystery to God of God through the ages, and it's a, also a means of making His wisdom known. And here's the astounding truth here, that we have the wisdom of God. It says, it's made known to who? Look in your Bibles. It says, to the rulers and authorities, where? In the heavenly places. So somehow, in and through this gathering, God is actually proclaiming His greatness, proclaiming His wisdom, proclaiming His grace to the angels and demons who are watching. Not only to a watching world, He's proclaiming to the heavenlies. You know, it says earlier that angels long to look into the salvation that we have and understand it. How do they understand it? They understand it as we live out as a church body, the unity that He's given to us. And they're amazed that God would call unlikely people and use us to, to speak His wisdom. And you know what the other thing it's speaking of? And really, in, in Hebrews, there's a th- I mean, in Ephesians, there's a theme here where 
It talks about principalities and powers because the Ephesians were aware of the demonic attacks that they were experiencing, of, of the opposition from evil forces. They were tempted to be afraid, and God says, No, my wisdom is proclaimed. As you live out this body, that's spiritual warfare. It's proclaiming the wisdom of God's grace. And it's actually giving notice to the principalities and rulers and powers that their time is limited, that God, who's united all things in the church, is one day going to unite everything else. And these people who have been joined together and bow their knees to Jesus are evidence of the fact that one day every tongue, tribe, nation, every principality and power will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. It speaks of the very existence of local congregation of gathered believers from with all these differences, it's self-assigned to the principalities and powers of the reconciling power of the gospel. It makes demons quake and angels amazed. The fact that people who are different love each other is a display of wisdom of God in the church. When there's unity and peace and excitement about our shared mission together, where there, where there could be, complaining, backbiting, gossip in the world. This, this makes known the manifold wisdom of God to angels and demons alike. When a local church is carrying out its mission of being ministers of reconciliation, when, when you're reaching out to people who don't look or act or think like you, when you're inviting them to church, when a local church is committed to each other, loving each other, serving each other through whatever may come, it testifies the wisdom of God to the spiritual world as well when we lay aside our preferences, when we participate together wholeheartedly here in this church and what God has called us to, it, it's a reminder to, to demons and evil spirits that their power has been broken and that everything is under Christ's feet. Do you see that? This glorious mystery that Paul has, that he's proclaiming, that we have, that we get to proclaim, that we get to be a part of. Does it stir you? How we act in our local church congregation, he's saying, it makes a difference. If you're pursuing fellowship or neglecting fellowship, it says something about the wisdom of God. If we're not committed to our local church, it says something untrue about God's wisdom. If we're not serving in our local church, it says something untrue about God's power to change our lives and make us into people who are willing to give everything to make his good news evident. When local church is united, though, in purpose and in heart and in deed, it testifies to the proof that one day God's going to unite everything together in Christ, just like he's united us together in Christ. That's, that's the glorious mystery of the church. That's exciting. We need to get more excited about just that simple purpose of our local church that God's calling to us. It's not simple. It's profound. And it was God's plan from the very beginning. It was to show that before there was a beginning... He purposed that even for our little church. Look in verse 11. It says that this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. His eternal purpose that he has realized is that he would make himself known through the church and through this church. As part of this local church body, as part of the greater body of Christ, you can be assured that you are a part of God's eternal purposes that he's realized in Jesus. Do you get that? We're people on a mission. We're unlikely people made stewards of His grace. Given a mission and a purpose. He's called us to be proclaimers, to be light in the world, in and through the church. Seems crazy, doesn't it? When you love and serve and care for other people here, when you serve in children's ministry, when you don't feel like it, it it's proclaiming something. 
It has meaning, it has significance. When you give financially, even though it's difficult, it means sacrifice. It proclaims to angels and demons that you've been changed and you're living for another kingdom and not your own. When you carry out our local church mission to go and to, to grow as disciples, to make disciples, you, you're carrying out the eternal purposes of God. You're preaching to a watching world and to, to principalities and powers that you're not relying on your own ability, your own strength, like Paul didn't. You're relying on the grace of God that's been given to you, that made you alive, and that's making you like his son. Maybe you become weary. Maybe you've lost sight of what God's called us to. Maybe you find you aren't thrilled with the simple but astounding mission that God's called you to in this church. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. I'm going to exhort you. Shake off that wrong understanding of what the church is. Embrace the wisdom of God to place you in this local church to work out your salvation, to grow in your sanctification, to grow as disciples, to make disciples, and see that as part of God's divine wisdom that He would call us an unlikely people and join us together. And we're part of a mission together, and it's exciting. He has great riches that He gives to us children. He doesn't leave us alone. He calls us. He equips us. He makes us able for His glory. And here's, here's, here's the good news here. In verse 12, Paul is saying, here's how you can do this. Here's how you can live this way. Here's, here's how I did. He says in verse 12, look in your Bibles. In whom we have, in Jesus, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. What he's saying is you don't do this on your own. You have boldness and confidence in Jesus through your faith in Him. You're not alone. You have the very power and presence of God that you can boldly come before the throne of grace and ask for mercy and help in time of need. You don't have to come timidly. You don't have to come cautiously wondering if God accepts us. No, we can have confidence to come before God with joy knowing we're accepted in and through our faith in Jesus. No hardship, he's saying, can can thwart God's plans or take you away from God. No, you have boldness and confidence no matter what happens. Paul appeals to them in verse 13 and we'll close with this. Paul says, because of all these things, so I ask you, in light of God's great plans, in light of his wisdom, even when, you know, even God's wisdom people didn't get. They didn't see how God was playing out his wisdom through the ages, right? We seldom understand, in our little finite perspective, how God's wisdom is playing out in our lives, how God's wisdom is playing out in this church, and how how is God's wisdom playing out in circumstances and trials and difficulties, and how, how, if, if I was thrown into jail... For preaching the gospel, it would probably throw some people. Probably make you wonder, whoa, is, is God, what's God doing here? How could that be the wisdom of God? And so Paul's writing to him. And he says, no matter what happens, I ask you not to lose heart. Look in verse 13. Over what I'm suffering for you, I've been thrown in, in, in prison for the gospel. He says, which is your glory. Because he knows that he's suffering on their behalf and for their good. And he knows that his imprisonment is no setback to the cause of Christ. He knows the difficulties and challenges he faces and that they will face are no setback to the to great outworking of God's plans in and through the church to declare his gospel of his grace, to unite all things to him. Paul probably didn't realize that his own suffering, his own imprisonment, it actually was the means to give freedom. It's irony there, isn't it? God imprisoned Paul. Now, yeah, he used the Romans, he used the, the Jews to imprison him, but ultimately it was God's purposes, God's plans playing out. He, he had Paul imprisoned. Why? To bring freedom, to bring good news, 
to see, see Paul probably wouldn't have written so many letters if he wasn't confined from the people he loved. From the Ephesian church, he would have gone there to them and preached in the churches and said, we have this letter. And Paul didn't even know how God's wisdom would be played out. There's so many times we don't know how God's wisdom is played out in our lives through circumstances, through situations. We can't see his purposes when we feel confined. We feel imprisoned. And Paul's saying, don't, don't lose sight of the fact that God's at work. Don't lose heart. It's for your glory. Truly, Paul's suffering for the Ephesians, it was for their glory and, and for ours as well. See, Paul was a part of God's glorious plans to reveal the mystery, the good news in Jesus Christ in and through the church. Here's the deal. We are a part. You and I are a part of God's glorious plans to make the good news known and to make known to angels and demons by being a part of this church. God's multifaceted wisdom and how we participate in the church is it demonstrates to the watching world and to demons and angels we can't even see that, oh, that's God's wisdom. Whoa. God would bring people who hated him and each other together in the church. And they wouldn't live for themselves, but they would live for him. What's the, what's the very last thing, that, that, the thing I think we should all get and walk away with? It's in his divine wisdom. In his divine wisdom, God works in ways that we might not understand on our own. Do you see that in your life? He works in ways you might not understand on your own. But we can trust him. What was he telling all this to the people for? We can trust God because we can see his wisdom at work in the church. So in some way, like Paul, we might suffer. It might be difficult for us. It might be difficult even in the church. We might be required to die to ourselves, to become more like Jesus. But we get to be a part. We get to be a part of God's manifold wisdom, working out his eternal mission we can be ministers of His grace and we can trust that He is working His plans at just the right time, just the right way, and just the right place for His glory and our good. We get to partner together with Him. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would have hope, and I pray that we as a church would be stirred to excitement for the simple fact of just being a part of Your people and the mission that you've called us to. But we'd be stirred to excitement, seeing that we get to be stewards and proclaimers of your grace, but not alone. We're not called alone. I pray we'd be excited that you didn't call us alone, but you called us together and you reconciled us to each other and to you, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would proclaim the mysteries of Christ in and through the church. May this stir our own hearts and souls, God. May we see you as greater. Would you give us a desire to search out your unsearchable wisdom? Would you make us love you more, we pray. Jesus' name, amen.